Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. With me, Joe Serralo, episode 15, and I can't wait. Ken Rosenthal, MLB on Fox reporter, set to join the show. Also, the senior writer, of course, over at The Athletic. Can't wait for what he has to say about what's so far been an incredibly boring MLB free agency cycle. Of course, last night, the deadline to tender or non-tender contracts for either pre-arbitration or arbitration-eligible players. So I'm excited to hear his thoughts. But first, we've got to get to the first Wednesday football game in league history. Wednesday afternoon football on NBC. The Pittsburgh Steelers, the Baltimore Ravens, one of the best rivalries in the NFL. A game that seldom disappoints, and it could not have been more of a disappointment than it was yesterday. Look, we knew what we were getting ourselves into. We knew what to expect from the Baltimore Ravens. A severely depleted team, missing their quarterback, missing their top two running backs, stars on the defensive line, all out because of a COVID outbreak. We knew the Ravens probably weren't going to show up and compete. Well, they did exactly just that. They showed up and they competed, not because they played amazing football, but because the now 11-0 Pittsburgh Steelers looked slow, They looked disinterested. They didn't back up all that trash talk and anger about having a game pushed back now for the second time this season. Of course, there was the fiasco with Tennessee back in what was supposed to be a week four matchup. That game, I believe, got played week seven. Eric Ebron, incredibly outspoken about that. Other members of the Steelers, Chase Claypool, the phenomenal rookie, very displeased with how the league handled it. And then you've got yesterday's game. It was supposed to be played six days earlier on Thanksgiving Eve, and it got played at 3.40 on a Wednesday afternoon. Why wasn't it primetime? Because NBC was airing the lighting of the Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center. You, you can't make this up. And the Steelers looked like a team that was disgruntled, a team that really didn't want to be on the field yesterday. Their play showed exactly that. And I was very confident that the Steelers were going to run away with this game just until about an hour or so before game time. When I saw this tweet from Stefan Tuitt that said, good luck to my boys, go out there and pad the stats today, should be an easy one. The second I saw that tweet from Stefan Tuitt, who of course was one of the very few Steelers to miss yesterday's game due to their own miniature COVID outbreak, him along with, of course, James Conner, the running back, And their center, Marquise Pouncey, now that one showed. Not having Pouncey in the game yesterday showed the Steelers got beat on the inside by the Ravens' JV defensive line multiple times in that first half. And that's one of the many things you can attribute to the slow start from Pittsburgh. But when I saw that tweet, in a rivalry game, I don't care who is suiting up at quarterback, whether it's 
RG3, Lamar Jackson, Trace McSorley. I don't care. When you see a tweet like that right before a rivalry game between two teams that hate each other, two cities that hate each other, two coaches that I don't think there's any love lost between, that's the worst thing you can do. That's the kiss of death. And the Steelers won the game. Sure, they're still 11-0. They're still the one seed in the AFC in a year where it matters more than ever, where there's only one bye week, one team rather, in the playoffs that receives a bye week as opposed to two in past years. Yes, it matters. They won the game. Congratulations. The Steelers come away with that game yesterday with absolutely zero positives, in my opinion. None. There is not a single takeaway from yesterday's game that I look at and I go, oh, well, that's a reason that the Steelers can be a Super Bowl contender. Because the Steelers were utterly disappointing. In a game that they should have probably won 34-3, to they just failed to execute time after time on offense. Their red zone execution was absolutely abysmal. The offensive line looked horrendous. Wide receivers were dropping balls left and right. I mean, everything that could have gone wrong for Pittsburgh, anything that could have enabled Baltimore to pull off a miraculous upset win yesterday, really did happen. Except the Ravens just outdid the Steelers in terms of being worse on offense. I mean, look, RG3, I love the guy. I have since Baylor. I wanted him to be the number one pick coming out of college. I was ecstatic that he won Rookie of the Year. I wanted him to go on and have an incredible Hall of Fame-worthy NFL career. It just wasn't going to happen. Injuries took their toll. He's been a bust. He can't throw the ball anymore. He had a couple effective runs, and this is where Baltimore really took away their own opportunity to win the game late in the first half. When RG3 pulled off a 30-plus yard run, the Ravens were able to essentially run the ball the entire drive, get down at one point with Gus Edwards' help to the one-yard line of Pittsburgh right before halftime. Instead of spiking the ball, and taking the points, going into the locker room down 12-10 to 10 because Justin Tucker is automatic, the best kicker in NFL history. They run a play on fourth and goal, a play action, roll out RG3 to Luke Wilson, incomplete pass, halftime, nothing to show for what was otherwise their most productive drive of the afternoon. I mean, that was horrendous decision making by the Baltimore Ravens. RG3 did his part. RG3 got the ball where it needed to go. That said, it was going to a practice squad tight end. And they had nothing at the end of the half to show for it. You gotta take the points. Did the Baltimore Ravens, who were sure as hell not playing football on Sunday, did they watch the Arizona-New England game? Did they watch the Cardinals, who were up 10-7 at halftime, go for it on the one-yard line, the final play of the first half, instead of kicking a field goal, and fail to get in the end zone, fail to put points up on the board? Did they know how that game ended, how New England came back and won? I mean, that is the absolute biggest momentum killer. Getting down to the opposing team's one-yard line and walking away with zero points. Look, I know anyone would rather have seven than three points in that situation. But when you get down that far, when you take that much time off the clock, drive the ball, wear down the opposing defense, and walk away with absolutely nothing to show for it, that is the cardinal sin of football. Take the damn points. Baltimore might have had a shot at winning that game had they taken the points. Arizona probably would have beaten New England had they gone into the locker room at halftime up 13-7 instead of 10-7. But they didn't. They got greedy. They didn't execute against, mind you, the best defense, at least the best defensive front seven in football. And they lose the game by the same amount of points that they were trailing by at halftime, by five points. Now, 
For my teaser, I'm incredibly grateful. The four and a half point Steelers win I needed. Four team teaser completed. I am ecstatic for that reason. But if you're Baltimore and you're trying to win football games, which last I checked, the Ravens don't care about my teaser. That was a terrible decision made by Harbaugh and company. Look, the Pittsburgh Steelers really need to get things in order in the final five games of the season. It's not an easy stretch for Pittsburgh. Yes, you can argue maybe some of their most intimidating contests are behind them. A pair of games with Baltimore done. A great win against Tennessee out of the way. But the Steelers still have Buffalo, who is heating up at the right time, and Indianapolis left on the schedule. The Steelers are by no means a lock for 16-0. In fact, I just saw minutes ago that they have just a 17% chance to finish 16-0, and I'd say that's pretty accurate right now because they are trending downward. I don't know if Big Ben, if the long season now after missing last year is finally taking its toll, if it's catching up to him, he looked awful yesterday. The best passes I saw in yesterday's football game came from Trace McSorley. I mean, and by the way, let me talk about Trace McSorley quickly because no, he's not going to be starting for anyone in the NFL anytime soon on a weekly basis. But I loved everything I saw from him in the short amount of time that he was on the field. When he came in, he immediately got rocked on a run by Minka Fitzpatrick. He came away from that hit chirping. Uh, Fitzpatrick was ready to go after McSorley. I don't know what McSorley said to him, but he got rocked and he came up talking smack. Then proceeded to, just a couple plays later, step up in the pocket and take off again right before hitting Hollywood Brown on that 70-yard throw. And if his two run plays, his two significant run plays, didn't show that the kid had moxie, that throw to Hollywood Brown, I mean, that throw had pick six written all over it. That throw was perfect for a defensive back to jump, pick off, and see you later, no one's catching him. But he still made it, and he zipped it in there, and the D-back who tried to jump it got burned by one of the fastest young receivers in the NFL in Hollywood Brown. I mean, that throw took balls. Everything that Trace McSorley did when he came into that game for RG3 took balls. And I was really impressed. I mean, I've watched a ton of this kid being a Penn State fan. I have loved McSorley. You know, not too long ago, Penn State brought in Christian Hackenberg, the number one high school quarterback recruit in the country. And he had a phenomenal freshman year. And he couldn't have been any worse his sophomore year, his junior year, and then in his brief stint in the National Football League. Trace McSorley was a nobody coming out of high school compared to Christian Hackenberg. And Trace McSorley, because he's tough as nails, is now an NFL quarterback on a team that, well, should be a perennial playoff team. He looked like the best quarterback on the field yesterday. Ben Roethlisberger looked slow. He looked flustered in the pocket. I mean, he made a throw and, you know, ultimately it was the throw that won Pittsburgh the game. But with two and a half minutes left, he made a lollipop throw into triple coverage that looked like a six-year-old throwing a shot put. It looked like he was laboring that much. And I don't know how that ball wasn't picked off. It took forever to get to Chase Claypool. But ultimately, end of the day, it was caught. Game over. First down, just outside the two-minute warning. Baltimore had one timeout left after burning one immediately after that ball was caught. And that throw ultimately won Pittsburgh the game. It sealed the deal. I don't know how that ball was not picked off. That was one of the worst throws I've ever seen at the NFL level. And Ben Roethlisberger has looked like that for the better part of the past month. And that's why I'm worried about the Pittsburgh Steelers moving forward. I don't see this 11-0 powerhouse team. I see an 11-0 team that has a favorable strength of schedule, that has a phenomenal coach, 
but that has a lot of holes. And a team that if the defense isn't absolutely superb week in and week out, and now look, they lost Bud Dupree. Unfortunately, he tore his ACL. Bud Dupree and TJ Watt, that's the best pass rushing duo in the NFL. And they're down 50% of that duo now. You know, without Dupree, with two at missing yesterday's game, if this defense isn't superb week after week, the Steelers don't have a chance at getting past Kansas City in the postseason. They might not have a chance at getting past Buffalo or a team from the AFC South. I mean, the Pittsburgh Steelers are by no means a sure thing. That offense needs a lot of work. When we come back, Ken Rosenthal, we're talking a little baseball in December, and I can't wait. So stick with us here on Sorallo Sports Talk with me, Joe Sorallo. Don't even think about leaving. You're locked into the best sports talk out there. Here's Joe. All right, we're back here on Sorallo Sports Talk with me, Joe Sorallo, and joining the show now. It's MLB on Fox reporter, senior writer over at The Athletic, and the man who looks way better in a bow tie than you do, Ken Rosenthal. Ken, thanks so much for joining the show. Joe, you're too kind. I think most people would look better in a bow tie and anything else than I would, but all good. <laughs> well, to your credit, I would never even try to pull it off, so you've got me beat already. Ken, last night was the non-tender deadline in Major League Baseball. What were some of the most surprising moves made, in your opinion? Actually, Joe, I thought there might be bigger surprises. Now, people will say Kyle Schwarber, of course, big name, no question about it. That was one surprise, but that was really speculated upon. Archie Bradley was probably the guy that I least expected. Uh, He's a reliever with Cincinnati. Cincinnati is looking to cut payroll, so that was a possibility, I guess, if you play it out. Eddie Rosario, not really that much of a surprise. He had been talked about. So we really didn't see maybe the shocking names that had been rumored in part because a lot of players accepted what they call pre-tender deals. And they didn't want to go to arbitration. So you didn't see as many non-tenders as expected. That's what I'm trying to say. And basically, the level of surprise on the players who were non-tendered was not as great as maybe some of us thought it would be. So now while the Cubs let a guy like Kyle Schwarber go, they did hold on to Chris Bryant. What are your thoughts on where Chris Bryant starts the 2021 season? Will it be with Chicago, or are they going to look to ship him off in a trade? That's a great question, Joe. They do want to change up their mix, and obviously by letting go of Schorber and Almora, they're doing that. Can they do it also with Bryant, and how much payroll do they need to cut? That is the big question, and that's really the big question with a lot of teams. Where are the payrolls going to be? Now, if for some reason – the Cubs have to actually get down to a really low number. Well, they're going to trade Bryant probably for not the value that they would normally think of. He's coming off a bad year. He's going to make like $19 million. It's not a great time to trade him. He's got only one year of control remaining. But even given all that, I still expect him to be traded because I don't know that they want to start the season with him on their payroll when they can use that money to do other things. Wow, that'd certainly be uh, some fall from grace. MVP, World Series champ, and all of a sudden shipped out of Chicago. 
Now, there's a lot of talk about payroll, not just with the Cubs, all over the league. Last week, Phillies owner John Middleton reportedly told the team's baseball ops department that they were losing $2 billion this year. Now, that claims... That was been, inaccurate. That was, that was crazy inaccurate. Yeah. Rob Manfred said, the commissioner of baseball said, the teams combined had lost $3 billion in operating losses. So, for one team to lose $2 billion, that wasn't true. What was later reported by the Associated Press quoting a source from the Phillies, is that they lost $145 million. That number sounds a lot more accurate. Yeah, and, and that was the number that I saw as well. But ultimately, there was a significant revenue loss for pretty much every team across the board. Yes. How do you expect that to impact this free agent class that has some stars, guys like Springer, Real Muto, Bauer, obviously? I don't know that it impacts those guys. The top guys will get their money. Where you'll see the impact is on the so-called middle class guys who are not stars, not elite players. And in certain areas and positions, you're going to really see problems because there is a glut of players available. Right-handed relievers, there's a ton of them out there. We saw a lot of corner outfielders non-tendered last night, a good amount. And there is now a glut at that position. So you're going to see some players get some surprisingly poor deals. But I do think the top of the market will – be largely what it might have been anyway just as Mookie Betts got his money maybe not as much as he would have gotten in a non-pandemic world but he got it uh you'll see the same with Real Muto, Liam LeMayhew etc. Now Ken you know I'm out here in New York I I love my Mets I couldn't be more ecstatic to have the Wilpons gone and Steve Cohen running the show how much of an advantage if any do you think the Mets have in free agency having a new owner who didn't suffer the losses last year that the Wilpons and the other owners across baseball suffered? It's that, and it's also the fact that what his net worth, real-time value is something like $14 billion. <laughs> Both those things combined should really help the Mets. And we've seen it already. They were right out front to get Trevor May, paid him a, a decent salary, I thought, a pretty good deal for the player. So, yes, they will be aggressive. I don't know that they're going to sign all top, all the four top guys or two, either two of the top guys. I don't know that they get all that done. But what Sandy Olsen said at the initial news conference was really telling. He said something to the effect of, well, now when we're talking about acquisition costs, we're talking more about the acquisition and not the cost. That's a big difference for the Mets than in the recent past. Yeah, it seemed that every year it was bargain shopping in the winter uh, for the New York Mets. And it's nice to obviously see a change in that approach. Obviously, to have Sandy back, able to run the show and get the guys that he really wants, not the guys that he may have to thrift off the market. When I talk about those big three, I, do you have to take that call, by the way? You could. No, it's my wife. Oh, <laughs> and here I was thinking like Trevor Bauer just uh, got, got it out no, of no, by no, the no. Mets. So Trevor Bauer, George Springer, Real Muto, what are you hearing about those three specifically? Uh, one of those three most likely to come to New York or none of them? What are your, uh, what are your sources telling you with those guys? Well, what my sources tell me at this point in free agency where it's relatively early is not that important because things haven't really played out. Do the Mets have interest in all of those guys? Sure, they do. Springer and Real Muto in particular are fits at positions of need, so they would make a ton of sense. Springer is from the Northeast, obviously Connecticut, went to University of Connecticut, and he in particular, it seems to me, makes a lot of sense for them. But so would Real Muto, of course. They've had a catching issue for some time. So I don't know. I can't say with any degree of confidence which way they're going to go, how this is going to turn out. 
They couldn't say right now because it's an open market. It's a competitive bidding situation. But again, to get back to the basic point, they're in there for these guys. And I would be surprised if they did not get at least one. And I certainly hope that at least one, I mean, I have my eyes on Bauer and Springer, but uh, I would hope to get multiple of those guys. Now, I didn't mention DJ LeMahieu in terms of uh, the biggest names because I have a really good gut feeling that he ends up back in the Bronx. The Yankees have guys like Paxton, uh, Tanaka, LeMahieu on the free agent market. What are your thoughts on how the Yankees are going to handle this offseason? LeMahieu is the focal point. You're right. And the interesting thing about the Yankees is, okay, if they get him done, let's say it's four years, 85 million, something in that range, which is where I expect it will go, even maybe a little higher. What do they have left for their pitching? Because obviously they need pitching. They've got Tanaka, a free agent. They've got Paxton, a free agent. And beyond that, they want better. So I don't know. They've also got the question at shortstop. Do they want to keep Glaber there or do something else? And if LeMahieu goes, do they sign a shortstop and put Glaber back at second? There are a lot of things that they can do, but it all goes back to LeMahieu and whether he resigns. I, I'm like you. I do expect him back there. I, the entire industry does. But there is a ton of interest in him. And if the Yankees, for whatever reason, maybe they don't have the money to spend that they ordinarily would, and they just don't want to go invest it primarily in DJ, then perhaps things open up and he goes somewhere else. Did the Gary Sanchez move, the, uh, the decision to retain him, surprise you at all yesterday? Because there had been rumors that the Yankees were interested in James McCann, potentially even Yadier Molina. So how much did that Sanchez uh, move surprise you? Somewhat based on his performance and what we saw from him in 2020, but not as much based on what I've heard from the Yankees about him over the years. And Brian Cashman is a big supporter of this guy. And Boone has been as well, though, of course, his playing time decisions indicated a level of frustration toward the end of the season. Gary Sanchez, if they can get him right, and I know we say this every year, is an above average at the least catcher. So it seems that new problems crop up with him every year, whether it's blocking, whether it's framing, throwing, whatever the case, well, not throwing, but whatever the case might be in yeah. last year was hitting. But at $5 million, which is what the number is going to be around, they just feel it's still worth taking that shot. Yeah. Now, Ken, you know, a lot of what we've talked about the past few minutes with the Mets and Yankees is purely speculation. And I believe you've said it, definitely once, maybe a couple times that it's too early to tell how much of a problem does major league baseball have when free agency in say the NBA takes off immediately day one and baseball sits around, it seems like for months before the big name players sign. How much of a problem is that for the league and drawing interest? So if I had to pick out their top 20 problems, I don't know that that would be in a top 20. <laughs> it's more annoying than anything, frankly. It's okay. annoying for fans, it's annoying for media, and I think it's even annoying for the clubs, but it's just the way this plays out. It's not like the NBA where there's a cap and a limited amount of money. It's a free market system, and this is the way it works. Would I prefer that it took place over one month or two, and would the teams prefer that so there could be some downtime? Yeah, and the fans would prefer it too. They want to see action, but you can make the case that because it is prolonged, that the attention of the fans stays on baseball throughout the off season. So I don't know that it's 
that big a problem when you've got all these other issues on the horizon. So you might have just opened up a bag of worms there. Now I'm curious, what to you are the biggest problems for baseball? Because I'm, I feel like in, in the extreme minority as a 22-year-old who can say baseball is his favorite sport, that just doesn't happen anymore. So what would you say are the biggest problems for the league right now? Well, there you go, what you just said. And you're a young person who likes baseball, but for the most part, it's a sport that attracts an older crowd in part because it's not fast enough, entertaining enough, however we want to describe it, for the younger audience. And I don't know that baseball needs to change what it fundamentally is, but does it need more action? Yes. Does it need perhaps quicker games? Yes, that is more debatable. But certainly the strikeouts, the walks, even the home runs, these are all things that in limited doses are fine. But you want to see things going on. You want to see the ball in play. That is a huge problem. The relationship between the owners and players is a problem because, of course, they've been fighting now for several years, and we have a collective bargaining agreement expiring December 1st of next year, and they're going to have to get a new deal. So these things are the big issues kind of looming over the sport right now, and that's what needs to be resolved on both fronts, the way the game is played and the relationship between the players and owners. You know, Ken, I I couldn't agree more. As much as it pains me to say this being a Mets fan – one of the best teams I've seen in recent years, people often overlook them, is the 2015 Royals because they didn't hit home runs, but they didn't strike out. They put the ball in play all the time, and I thought they were one of the most entertaining teams in my lifetime, especially the past decade. Yeah, no doubt. And we've seen other teams like that win the World Series. And this is an argument that people have, and it's not always valid within the context of how to win games. You can win games with home runs. In fact, home runs are good, (laughs) okay? Of course. And if you have a pitching staff, you want strikeouts. Good thing. We're talking about the aesthetics, the way the game plays out for fans, the entertainment value of the game. And while home runs are entertaining, they're not entertaining – well, they're entertaining in their own right. But if they're leading to an accompanying number of strikeouts, which is kind of the trade-off you get, well – That's not necessarily a net game. So, again, the ball in play is the biggest thing. You get the ball back in play, rather than these massive gaps between balls in play, you'll have better action. Yeah, now a a team that has recently uh, had a lot of success, but kind of wins unconventionally in today's game, the Tampa Bay Rays. I want to know, what's the latest with Randy Arozarena? I mean, the man who, you can argue, even with them losing, could have been the World Series MVP, undoubtedly would have had the award had they won the World Series. What's the latest on his situation now? Do you mean the one in Mexico or yes, in general? Yes, the domestic well, that, uh, violence. The charges were dropped, so it seems like that is going nowhere. I don't know if baseball – I imagine they'll continue their investigation and look into it further, but as of right now with the charges dropped, that's where it stands. Well, it's definitely good news for him and Rays fans. He had some coming out party. Ken, I, I know you have to go soon – Before you do, you received national attention, I alluded to it before, about a decade ago for wearing a bow tie on every broadcast you do. How did this tradition start, and what kind of impact did a man who I've had on the show a couple times before, Dahani Jones, have on that fashion statement? Well, Dahani is the reason behind it, and Joe, I'll try to make this as quick as possible. It's kind of a long story. So I've got time if you do. (laughs) All right. Fox in, man, I don't even remember the year. I think it was 2012. They came to me and said, the head of Fox Sports, a guy named David Hill, wants you to wear a bow tie. And I was like, what? I had never worn a bow tie in my life. I thought it was a dumb idea. And 
he basically explained it to me. He wants me to stand out. And that's the way on television to make me stand out. And I thought, well, shouldn't my reporting make me stand out? Isn't that kind of the idea? But it is TV. It is different. So during the playoffs that year, I wore a bow tie. I had someone actually tying it for me and hated it. My family hated it. I just wasn't into the whole thing. That offseason, Dehani Jones, who, of course, a former NFL player, went to the University of Michigan, came to me and said, hey, I have this nonprofit. It's bow ties that are affiliated with different organizations, charities, and we sell them. We use them to raise awareness. Would you wear our bow ties? And at first, my reaction was, no, I never want to wear a bow tie again. (laughs) But then I thought, you know what? Fox is going to want me to wear them again. I know David Hill is going to want me to wear them again why not get ahead of it and actually put it to good use and make it into a positive? In my mind, it was a negative, but this way, if it's benefiting charities and different organizations, it's a positive. That's how it started. And it's funny to this day, I'm not that big a fan of them. I probably would rather not wear them, but when I don't wear them, for instance, on MLB Network, people say, hey, where's the bow tie? So it is kind of something that's been associated with me. And the bottom line is David Hill was right. It did distinguish me and not in a bad way. So I always tease him and thank him. He's no longer with Fox Sports, but he teases me a lot too. And let's face it, he had a good idea. Ken, it turned out to be a great idea. And I know you've raised a lot of money and brought a lot of attention to uh, some great causes by doing it, man. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you joining the show. Thank you. Take care, Joe. We'll be back here on Sorallo Sports Talk with my final word right after the break. Don't change that channel. It's time for Joe's final word here on Sorallo Sports Talk. All right, it's time for my final word here on Sorallo Sports Talk. What a spot right there. Ken Rosenthal, one of the best reporters in the business. A guy who actually went to high school just a town over from me, went to the same grammar school that I attended for a couple years. Great having the fellow Long Islander on the show. But for my final word today, I want to take a couple minutes to focus on something that's gotten a lot of attention lately, but needs to get more attention all the time. And that's women in sports. And of course, Sarah Fuller has gotten a ton of attention in the past week. The kicker at Vanderbilt, who has broken the barrier, the first woman to suit up for a Power 5 football team. She's been absolutely incredible. She is absolutely incredible. And I can't wait. You're going to hear from her in just a couple of minutes right here on Sorallo Sports Talk. But it shouldn't just be Sarah Fuller that's making national headlines. I mean, women in sports both on the coaching side of things, on the playing side, of course, in the media, make history every single day. I mean, just what they have to deal with is so much more than what any man on the field, on the court, on the coaching staff, in the press box has to deal with in this field. And that deserves more attention. I mean, what Sarah Fuller has done is incredible, but you're going to hear from her. Why hasn't she received more attention for the fact that she brought an SEC championship to Vanderbilt? for the first time since 1994 in women's soccer compared to the attention that she's getting for kicking on a football team that's 0-8. I 
I mean, this girl's a champion and an SEC conference champion. She's playing on a football team that's dead last in the conference, yet that's where the attention comes from. And look, I get it. Football and college basketball, men's basketball specifically, are the two biggest college sports in the eye of the public. I understand. I'm not going to lie and say that I sit here and watch more volleyball or wrestling. No, I watch more college football and college basketball than any other collegiate sport. But Sarah Fuller's athletic accomplishments started pouring in well before she joined the football team at Vanderbilt. And that's why when people scoffed at her, when people made demeaning, disgusting, sexist remarks towards her getting a shot to play for the football team, that's why she didn't cower to it. She embraced it. And of course, there's that picture going around the internet right now of her holding up the words, play like a girl. And here's what Sarah just told me just yesterday about what those words, play like a girl, mean to her. It used to be like, you know, an insult, like, oh, you play like a girl. And I wanted to turn that on its head and say, no, that's actually a huge compliment to play like a girl because we fought through so many things and we're showing up now. We're, we're breaking down these barriers. And I, and I wanted to make that clear. Like I have three rings sitting in my bedroom. You know, we deserve that recognition. I, I think that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, and just all the things that women in sports have done, just, it, it doesn't matter what sport it is. It doesn't, I, I mean, they've done amazing things. And I think we need to acknowledge that and it needs to be hyped up. It's so cool. It's amazing because for so long we were held back and we weren't allowed to do these things. And, you know, Title IX came along and all this stuff. And so now we're really making strides and really becoming present. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, right there, what an absolutely incredible, inspiring message from Sarah Fuller as to what playing like a girl is all about, as to what women in sports have to overcome that gets overlooked on a daily basis. She is absolutely incredible. I had a great time being able to listen to her talk yesterday. There was one final thing that she said to me that I wanted to include because for everyone out there hiding behind their Twitter fingers, hiding behind a computer screen or a phone who has something negative to say about all that she's accomplished, well, I'll let her tell you what she thinks of that. The positive have been incredible. Uh, mainly, I try not to look at them. The, the negative or anything or comments in general, I have someone else like look through the comments and let me know like, hey, they said this about you. I'm like, oh, so sweet. Um, you know, because of the negative, it's just a waste of my time. I, I have worked hard to get where I am and I was in the right spot at the right time to be called up on the, on the football team. And I've been working really hard to perform for them. So at the end of the day, I, I don't care what the negative is. There you have it. For everyone who has a negative comment, a negative remark, an insult, a sexist, disgusting statement to hurl at Sarah Fuller, well, know this, she can't hear you. And I absolutely love it because she's tuning you haters out and she's continuing each and every day to make history. What an incredible story, Sarah Fuller and all the hardworking women in sports who have to overcome crap on a daily basis deserve nothing but the best. And just like that, this episode of Serralo Sports Talk is up, it's over, it's out of here. Thank you to Sarah Fuller for giving her time last night. Thank you to Ken Rosenthal for joining the show. Guys, I'll see you next week.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.